Welcome back to the Down to Earth podcast. We often hear the word fiber being thrown around a lot, but don't fully understand its importance and the impact that it has on our body. Our guest today is Dr. Will Bushkowitz, a leading gastroenterologist. Dr. B is an expert in gut health and has found that following a well-balanced whole foods plant-based diet is the best remedy for optimal GI health and overall longevity. Dr. B is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Fiber Fueled, which offers important insight on how our gut works and the importance of feeding our bodies with clean and wholesome plant-based foods. The book also features delicious fiber-rich vegan recipes. His work has impacted the lives of so many, and he truly cares about his patients and about educating the world on how to become their healthiest selves. This is an episode that you definitely don't want to miss. Here we go. Welcome to the Down to Earth Podcast. We're your hosts, sibling duo, Jonathan and Lorena. In this podcast, we'll be spilling the tea on all things health and wellness related. This podcast is designed to motivate you to take care of your physical, mental, and spiritual health. We'll be bringing on doctors, healers, fitness experts, business leaders, and innovators. Thanks for joining us in our mission of making the world a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Here we go. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're both really big fans of your work and your amazing book, Fiber Fueled. And you talk a lot about your background in the book and what ultimately led you to pursuing the career that you're currently in. And I'd love to know a little bit more about your story and your motivation in following your passion. It's interesting because this was never the plan for me. I always sort of viewed myself as being very goal-oriented and having a five-year plan and you know, hey, this and this and this are going to happen. And then this is where I'll be. And I always expect that to actually be the way it plays out. And so it's weird when things start falling into place that change or deviate your path. And, you know, for me, I think what really deviated my path and brought me to where I am today is that I had to be the one who was sick himself. And so I was 30 years old and I was achieving a lot of professional success as a medical doctor. I was the chief resident at Northwestern, won the highest award in my residency program which is, by the way, side note, kind of weird that I'm a New York Times bestselling author now, and yet I still consider the highest award that I've ever received was <laughs> what I won that awarded in my residency program. It's sentimental, right? Yeah, <laughs> from the past. Struggle, yeah. It's the goal that you line up for your entire life, and then you actually accomplish it as opposed to some unexpected thing that happens to you that's a big deal. So I was achieving great professional success. I was 30 years old, and yet I felt like I was 60. I was 50 pounds overweight, which was sort of a tough thing for me to swallow because I always thought of myself as an athlete. I was a great athlete in high school. At high blood pressure, I had a lot of anxiety. I had shockingly low self-esteem for someone who was doing really well professionally. And something had to change. I needed something to change. And I tried to work my way out of it. I tried to exercise my way out of it. Being a guy, I kind of thought if you work hard enough, you can eat whatever you want and it doesn't matter. And it just didn't work. I could build muscle. I could run a great 5K. I could swim 100 laps in the pool, but I couldn't lose the gut. And what changed my life was when I met the person who's now my wife, and she ate radically different than me. I grew up eating the very standard American diet. I was a child of the 80s, so I drank Kool-Aid as a kid. I ate a lot of Doritos. When I was in high school, my brothers and I would come home from school and eat hot dogs. So it's not that I thought that my diet was great. I definitely didn't think that, but also my diet was kind of what people ate. It was very normal. And I met the person who's my wife and she ate plant-based. 
And what I observed as we started to date and get to know each other was that she could eat without restriction. She could clean her plate. She was enjoying her food, satisfied by it and like happy. And she had absolute control over her weight. There was no issue there. She wasn't, I mean, it was completely effortless. So when I saw that, I was like, it kind of sparked, you know, the idea in my mind, like, gosh, maybe you shouldn't be getting fast food every day, (laughs) which seems so obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me at the time. And so one day I deviated from my traditional path home. Instead of going to the fast food joint, I went home and I made a smoothie and I felt amazing instantly, like energized, light. I went to the gym an hour later, smashed a great workout. And just the way that I felt in that moment was enough for me to go, whoa, I think there's something here. And it wasn't an overnight change for me. It was a progression, but basically it was a series of things happening in my life. I was changing my diet. And as I was changing my diet, the fat was melting away. Blood pressure dropped, no longer had a blood pressure issue. The anxiety issue went away. My self-esteem was rising. All of these issues that I had were disappearing effortlessly as I was changing my diet. And at the same time, I was at a place in my career where I was now in medical practice. I was done with my training. People were asking me questions. Hey, doc, what should I eat for my Crohn's disease? Or what's the best diet of five-year-old bowel syndrome? And it's just who I am as a doctor that when people are asking me questions like that, I need answers. It's not good enough to look them in the eye and go, oh, you know, that stuff doesn't matter. Because I knew that wasn't true. So I needed real answers to be able to provide to these people, my patients that I care about so much. So I really started digging into the medical literature and found thousands and thousands of studies to support that there was this path to optimal health. And that was through a predominantly plant-based diet. So I really immersed myself. I studied, I spent my free time doing this and implemented it in my practice with incredible results. You know, people coming back to me who had irritable bowel syndrome for 10 years, who had reversed it. People who, you know, had ulcerative colitis, who were able to ditch their medication because they were doing so well. So it was so powerful that it compelled me to do something that was completely unnatural. And I know this is going to sound weird because I have, you know, 118,000 followers on Instagram. I do not like social media. It's just not me. I would rather be hanging out with you guys in a room, having a conversation than like on my phone. And so I was never a social media person, but I felt compelled to share this story. So I started my social media account in 2016. And one thing led to another. I was doing some podcasts. I had a podcast go viral with my friend Simon Hill from Plant Proof in 2018. And when that happened, I was just like, whoa, people are freaking out. And I was getting messages from around the world from people who were having the same results that my patients were having. And so then I was just like, you know, there's something here and people need to hear this. And it's not enough for me with full respect, obviously to you guys, it's not enough for me. I felt like it was not enough for me to go on podcasts and have conversations. It had to be bigger. And so I decided that I wanted to write a book and I started that process in August of 2018. And finally, in the midst of a global pandemic in May of 2020, my book launched and now it's in New York Times and USA Today and Publishers Weekly Bestseller. And I'm excited to be here and talk to you guys about it. Fiber Fueled. Yeah, Fiber Fueled is an absolutely amazing book. And I'm actually in naturopathic medical school. And I love that you talk so much about healing the whole person, not just looking at the gut. Like if someone comes in with IBS, we're not just looking at 
how their GI system works, but we're looking at their mental health. We're looking at their hormones and so many other things that I think sometimes people neglect to look at. And another thing that you mentioned is obviously nutrition, but I find that the medical system is so based on pharmaceuticals that even in medical school, you get like one or two nutrition courses and that's it. And you've gone and done your own research and found ways to really help your patients through a whole food approach. So I'm curious what you think some of the biggest challenges are in our current food system and healthcare system. Oh gosh, don't even get me started. (laughs) How how much time do we want to spend on this? Um, You know, I'll just cut to the chase. The challenge is this, that doctors, I want everyone listening at home to understand. And when I talk about doctors, I'm I'm speaking very broadly, but I'm really kind of emphasizing, I'm really talking about allopathic medicine, like Western trained doctors, MDs. The doctors are good people. You don't go into medical school because you think that that's the way to make money. You go into banking if that's what you want. And so we work really, really hard. We make continuous sacrifice. We basically give up our 20s so that we can train and we just live in a hospital for an entire decade. And then you come out on the other side and you're quite tired and you start taking care of patients and it's tedious work all day, five days a week. You take call, you take calls in the middle of the night. Sometimes you're exhausted and you still have to roll out of bed and go in. And the problem is that we haven't trained doctors in nutrition medical school, nutritional education, to call it nutritional education is not even accurate, to be honest with you. Because what we're actually teaching them is like, hey, if you have this rare vitamin deficiency, here are the five symptoms of this rare vitamin deficiency that you literally may not diagnose in your entire career. It's not practical knowledge. It's not, hey, how do you talk to your patient about nutrition? Hey, what's a carbohydrate? What is, you know, let's talk about protein. Let's talk about fats. What are good fats? That's not what people are trained in medical school. And even what they do receive, they receive in the second year of medical school, which for me was the spring of, let's see, that was spring of 2003. And here we are, it's 2020. I'm still pretty early in my career. And that was two weeks, two weeks of nutritional training 17 years ago. Now, the other issue is that we don't pay doctors to have nutrition conversations. We have built a healthcare system on pills and procedures. And I'm going to tell you why I think that is. I think it's a historical thing. I think the problem is once you set up shop and you create certain systems, it's hard to walk it back. But what I see is that we came back from World War II and we had just discovered penicillin. And that was the greatest discovery of the last 100 years from a medical perspective. And I, frankly, I vilify antibiotics in my book, but they are, they literally are, they have added years to our life expectancy. So when we discovered that, it was only natural that you go, whoa, Look at how powerful these pills are. Can you imagine being in the 1950s and being like, look at how powerful this is. So we doubled and we tripled down on a system built on pills and procedures. And we focused on acute care, like the patient who's critically ill in the hospital, how do we reverse that problem? And we have a great acute care system in the sense that we can reverse serious disease when a person is in the hospital. The problem is we lost complete sight of how to prevent disease and chronic care. We lost sight of that in the process of our becoming enamored and seduced by pills and procedures. And so now we have a healthcare system that doesn't compensate doctors for talking about nutrition, doesn't educate doctors on nutrition. And, you know, unfortunately, there's also the fact that I don't think the pharmaceutical industry really wants us to talk about nutrition. And so there's impediments that exist. Some people that live in, in my community here in Charleston think, that it's a professional mistake on my part to practice the way that I do, because 
to have a good conversation about nutrition takes 10 or 15 minutes. And those people make a lot more money than I do because they can see twice as many patients and they, and they will. They'll see literally twice as many patients as I do in a day. But for me, I would rather just not think about that and focus on, you didn't go into medicine for the economics of it or to make money. You went into medicine to take care of patients. So practice medicine the way that you believe is the right way to do it. That's the way we should all be doing it. Definitely. And I really commend you for taking that approach because I feel that in any industry, it's so easy to think about it just as a business and think about you know the financial upside, but it's so important to actually remain true to your intentions and the reasons why you started this path in the first place. So I do commend you for always thinking about the patient first. And I think for anyone out there who does see an allopathic doctor and who maybe does see medicine in a more traditional route, some ways that they could help themselves is reading books like yours, Fiber Fueled, and finding alternative research out there on ways that they could incorporate more natural healing approaches into their wellness routine. This is why we need a team-based approach to healthcare, right? Because if the allopathic doctor is not going to be a one-stop shop for everything, then we need a complete rounded team to say, okay, what is the best approach to, to our individual patients? And to me, I think the best approach is optimized diet and lifestyle in 100% of patients and accept and recognize like I'm just going to be honest, and I, and I think that most people realize this, but I, I mean, I feel like it needs to be said that if everyone on the planet had the perfect diet, there would still be heart disease. There would still be cancer, right? So it's not that there's no place for allopathic medicine. It's not that there's no place for pills and procedures. It's that we're missing the point when we are relying on pills and procedures and ignoring the root of our problem, which is diet and lifestyle. So we should address diet and lifestyle first and take that as far as we can take it but recognize that there will still be some people who will benefit from the use of medicine or potentially the use of procedures. It's just that it shouldn't be first line. It should be third line. Definitely. I couldn't agree with you more. Now, in your book, you talk a little bit about antibiotics and other medications that could mess up our microflora. So for people who are on medications or have taken several rounds of antibiotics, what are some ways that they can best support their gut? Well, it really comes back to the same principles and concepts that I teach throughout the book and just doubling and tripling down. So if I hypothetically had to take antibiotics, I would just double down on the exact same things that I do, which are described in the book. And by the way, this is also true of what we're dealing with right now in the COVID-19 pandemic is for me, I believe that gut health is more important than it's ever been. And so I am personally doubling and tripling down. So what do we do? The answer is that we optimize diet and lifestyle for a healthy gut. And if you've read the book, then you know that the single most powerful predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in our diet. And I feel like this is critically important no matter who your listener is. I don't care whether you are paleo, keto, vegan, agnostic, or the standard American diet. No matter who you are, I'm telling you that the biology of your microbiome is set up in a way where the diversity of plants in your diet is the most powerful predictor of the health of that community. So to me, it's you start with that. You start with diversity of plants. There's room for prebiotic fiber supplementation. And then the other thing that I think about is, okay, let's think about lifestyle and let's make sure that we're not sabotaging ourselves. So what I mean by that is let's not be like smashing the wine, pounding the alcohol. Let's not be up late at night watching reruns of The Office as much as I love that show. Get a good night's rest. Get your exercise. Spend time outdoors. Avoid processed foods. 
avoid high consumption of saturated fat, which causes damage to the microbiome. Like basically, avoid the things that are going to harm your gut, include the things that are going to help your gut. And that's the way that we optimize when we get exposed to antibiotics or other things like that. The one thing that's an interesting point that I think is important for everyone to hear is that I used to also include probiotics after antibiotics. And then there was a study that came out in September 2018 out of the Weizmann Institute, which is in Israel, in Tel Aviv. And what they showed convincingly is that when you take antibiotics and then you follow it with probiotics, you actually slow the recovery of the microbiome. So, uh, and I'll explain to you my understanding or rationale behind like what I think is going on there. But the point being that for the majority of people who take an antibiotic, I actually don't treat them with a probiotic. There are scenarios where if a person has a history of a Clostridium difficile infection, C. diff, then we have studies that suggest that probiotics can prevent the recurrence of a C. diff infection after antibiotics. In that patient, I would use a probiotic. But the majority of patients now, I don't do that. And the thought process, Jonathan, behind what's going on there is this. So when you take an antibiotic, it doesn't just, I mean, I, gosh, I wish it would target just the bad guys, but it doesn't. It's basically dropping napalm on your gut and it's just taking out a whole bunch of bacteria. So for example, the frequently prescribed antibiotic Cipro, which is used for urinary tract infections, like who knows how many prescriptions per day in the United States, just five days of this antibiotic wipes out about a third of your gut microbes, both good guys and bad guys, not just the bad guys. So you create this hole in the microbiome. And there's different ways that the, that hole will fill back in after you withdraw the antibiotic. And when you take a probiotic immediately afterwards, it creates a problem because basically what you're doing is you're filling the hole with artificial microbes that are not a part of your microbiome. And so it actually slows the process of your microbiome restoring itself. And that's the reason why it's paradoxical. I used to give everyone probiotics after antibiotics, but now I don't. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think a lot of people that are listening always assume that if you are on antibiotics, double up the probiotics. So it's good to know that that might not be the right approach to take. Yeah. And this is, you know, gosh, it's just yet another example of why we need clinical research, right? Because I myself would have thought that it, I would have thought that probiotics after antibiotics was the way to go. And it's not. I think it's so fascinating that you talk a lot about the gut and immune system connection. I think that you say that the gut accounts for 70% of our immune system. And people obviously understand nowadays that gut health is super important, but they might not fully realize the incredible impact that our gut has on our overall immune system. And I'd love for you to speak to that a little bit. You cannot separate the gut and the immune system. It's impossible to separate them. So if you were to zoom in on the colon, which is where the majority of your microbiome lives, if you were to zoom in on that location, what you would find is that there are 38 trillion microbes. So 38 trillion, this is a number that is a hundred times the number of stars in our galaxy. And they're sitting there and there is a single layer of cells that is so fine that you can't see it with the naked eye. You need a microscope to see this single layer of cells that is separating 38 trillion microbes inside your colon from 70% of your immune system that's on the other side. And they are in constant communication with each other. They are always talking to each other. And what's happening with the gut microbes ends up getting mirrored or affected in the immune system. When 
you damage the gut microbiome, you damage the immune system. And one of the ways that I know this is that when I was researching my book, I knew that many of the autoimmune conditions that exist, lupus, multiple sclerosis, celiac disease, I knew that many of them were connected back to the gut microbiome, that there was evidence of damage to the gut microbiome. What shocked me, and I'm a gut guy, what shocked me is that every single autoimmune and allergic and immune-mediated condition that I could find a study where they looked at what was happening in the gut microbiome, literally every single one showed evidence of damage to the gut microbiome. 100% of the time, when you have a confused immune system, you have evidence of a damaged gut microbiome. And so you can't separate these things. And this is why this is so critically important during the era of COVID-19, because look, this virus, the reality is it's not going away anytime soon. And there are steps that we each individually should take to protect ourselves, such as physical distancing, you know, maintaining six feet and not socially mixing as much and wearing a mask in public and things of that variety. Okay. So those are the things that you do to prevent transmission. But the reality is that many of us are likely to be exposed to this virus. And let's not forget the importance of creating your protective shield against what happens if you are exposed to this virus. And the immune system is critical. And the problem is that most people don't realize the majority of deaths from COVID-19 are due to respiratory failure. And what happens is that they get something called a systemic inflammatory response and they get acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. What happens with ARDS is both lungs fill up with fluid. You cannot live as a normal human being with acute respiratory distress syndrome. It's impossible. You need to be in an intensive care unit and have a breathing tube. So that this is what we see happening with the patients who have severe COVID-19. ARDS is not the virus. ARDS is the immune system reacting to the virus. And we need to optimize our immune system. An overactive immune system is as dangerous or more dangerous than an underactive immune system. We need it to be precise. We need it to be optimized. We need to be targeted. And this is where the connection between your gut and frankly, your food becomes really important because we have animal model studies with respiratory viruses where what they do is they give the animals either a high fiber or a low fiber diet. And the scientists were shocked when they saw that the animals receiving a high fiber diet lived longer with less symptoms and better lung function when they were exposed to this respiratory virus. The scientists are like, what the heck? Why? Like, we don't get it. And basically they went back and they studied what was going on. And what they discovered is this, fiber in the diet meets microbes in the colon. The microbes consume that fiber. It is their food. It is their fuel. This is what my book, chapter three is all about. And they release what are called short chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, and propionate. These short chain fatty acids, by the way, have, they're amazing. They have healing effects throughout the entire body. They reverse dysbiosis, reverse leaky gut. They optimize the immune system. They travel throughout the entire body. In this particular study, here's what happened. The short chain fatty acids jumped into the bloodstream, circulated to the lungs. In the lungs, they actually helped to recruit CD8 cells, which are the exact immune cells that you want to fight a viral infection. And just as important, if not more important, is that 
the short chain fatty acids took the rest of the immune system and said, whoa, 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 guys, chill. Sorry. This is not your battle. You stay in the barracks. So, and it kept the rest of the immune system at ease. This is exactly what you want. You want the right soldiers on the battlefield, but you want to tone down the rest of the immune system so that you don't go all nuclear because going nuclear is how people get ARDS. And so this is a perfect example of how the gut microbiome can affect the immune system. And it shows you this direct link where food connects to your microbiome, connects to your immune system. Those are three chains, three links in the chain connected to each other. You can't separate them. That's fascinating. And that's such great insight on what's going on right now and also just in general with our immune system. And fiber has been a part of our food since the beginning of time. But it does seem that in recent years, it's become very popular and you see a lot of products fortified with fiber and you see a lot of fiber powders. And obviously not all fibers are created equal. And what I really love about your book is that you talk about getting your fiber through whole food, natural sources. But a lot of people might not realize that you could actually get your daily fiber intake plus some through just fruits and vegetables. So can you talk a little bit about different fibers and are all fibers created equal? What do we want more of in our diet and what do we want to limit? This is such an important topic because we have been sold a lie. We have been told that fiber is fiber. Count the number of grams and you're good. That the fiber in cereal or a fiber one bar is just as good as getting your fiber from a whole plant source. And that's simply not true. There are millions, if not billions of types of fiber in nature. It's overwhelming to our scientists. It's really hard to define the chemical structure of fiber and then to define how it's different from other different types of fiber. And because of that, we don't even have an estimate of how many types of fiber exist in nature. But I'm sure there are millions, if not billions of unique types of fiber in nature. So to keep it simple, because fiber is so chemically complicated, We have broken it into two main categories, but these are really just descriptive terms, soluble and insoluble fiber. Soluble fiber is what is really special. I mean, I guess let me just say real quick, insoluble fiber is sort of the traditional story of fiber, what we were told as kids, which is that it goes in the mouth, passes through the intestine, it's unchanged, maybe it sweeps some stuff through, and then it launches out the other end as a torpedo, okay? So that's that's insoluble fiber. Soluble fiber is magic. Soluble fiber is what I was just describing in the study with the respiratory viruses and the high fiber diet. Soluble fiber is food for our gut microbes. And so what happens with soluble fiber is it passes through the intestine, enters into the colon where your microbiome lives, and they get into a feeding frenzy and they eat it and they, it empowers them. It makes them stronger. It makes them more capable of doing their job. And then they want to pay us back because we just fed them and they want to reward us. And the way that they do that is with these short chain fatty acids that I was just talking about a moment ago, that, you know, not only do they reverse leaky gut, not only do they affect our immune system, as I said, but they also lower cholesterol. They actually prevent insulin resistance. So they correct type two diabetes. They activate our satiety hormones, which is the reason why when you eat a plant-based diet, you don't have to overeat. And you can naturally eat as much as you want and still lose weight because you will automatically know when to stop eating because fiber will activate your satiety hormones. That is a missing thing in our society. They spread throughout the body with healing effects. We think that they reverse coronary artery disease. We have evidence that they can correct the blood-brain barrier. We have evidence that they cross the blood-brain barrier, enter into the brain, and can actually prevent Alzheimer's disease. Can you imagine how much the drug companies would pay for a pill that does that? 
So they are incredibly powerful. We get that from soluble fiber, but here's the key. Number one, we're not getting enough fiber. The average American is getting 15 to 18 grams of fiber. Guys, it is pathetically low, pathetically low, because the makeup of our diet is 60% processed foods, where basically what we've done is taken the healthiest part of our plants, stripped it out, and kept the unhealthy parts, right? That's our processed foods. They don't have fiber. And 30% of the American diet is animal products. There is no fiber in animal products, none at all. So what's left is just 10% of our diet, which is fruits, vegetables, whole grain, seeds, and nuts. And unfortunately, I hate to say it, but for the average American, most of that 10% is French fries. So we're missing this. We're missing this. We need more fiber. And one of the key points is this. There are many, many different types of fiber in nature. Each plant has its own unique types of fiber. You don't need to worry when it comes to the idea of prebiotics, which are the types of fiber that feed the microbiome. You don't need to worry whether or not your food has prebiotic fiber. Every plant, every single plant has prebiotic fiber. And the key is that these plants will each individually feed specific populations of bacteria. These microbes are picky eaters. They're just like us, right? I mean, I'm sure that if we compare notes on our diet, maybe there's a lot of similarities, but I'm sure there'd be differences. There's probably things that I eat that you guys wouldn't really dig. And there's things that you guys eat that I want to dig. And that's the way our microbes are too. They're picky eaters. And so when we eat, you know, for example, a black bean, we feed specific populations of bacteria and we make them stronger. And if we withdraw that black bean, those same populations of bacteria that we could have fed, we're no longer feeding them. They're starving, they grow weaker, and then they disappear. They become incapable of doing their job. So the point is to eat as much diversity of plants as possible because each plant has its own unique types of fiber that feed unique types of microbes. And we want a microbiome that is built on diversity because a diverse microbiome is strong, it is resilient, it is capable of dealing with whatever you throw at it because it's got all the players. It's got all the different players. So the bottom line is that fiber is the key to a healthy gut. We are not getting enough of it. And not only do we need grams of fiber, but we need grams of fiber coming from a wide diversity of plants. I personally don't count the grams of fiber in my diet. I count the diversity of plants in my diet. I pay attention to how many different plants I have with each meal. I'm glad you bring that up. And we see a lot of fad diets, like for example, the keto diet or the new one, the carnivore diet, which certainly probably don't have enough fiber in them. And I know in your book, you speak to fad diets and their impact on TMAO levels. So I would love to talk a little bit about that as well, because I found that really fascinating. Yeah. Any diet that encourages you to reduce the diversity of plants within your diet, to me, is missing the key point when it comes to the health of your gut microbiome. And this is the reason why my fear or concern is that even if you do have short-term metabolic gains, you will pay the price in the long term because you will weaken your gut when you go on a restricted diet, whatever type it is, whether it be keto or paleo or carnivore, whatever it may be. And so with regard specifically to TMAO, for the listeners at home who have never heard of this expression TMAO before, this is something that is produced by the microbes in your gut. And it is kind of like the polar opposite of the short chain fatty acids. You know, I was sitting here singing the praises of these microbes that can give us these short chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, and propionate. We also have microbes that can produce this TMAO, which is inflammatory. It is associated with the development of coronary artery disease, stroke, chronic kidney disease, 
that's three of the top 10 causes of death in the United States. It's also been associated with type 2 diabetes, with peripheral vascular disease, with atrial fibrillation, with congestive heart failure. I mean, there's nothing redeeming about TMAO. There's no reason to want to have TMAO. And the way that we get it is through the consumption of either carnitine or choline in our diet. Now, carnitine, probably, you know, just think about that word carnitine for a moment. You could probably guess where it comes from. The main source is red meat, but you can also find it in energy drinks. So be careful. And choline, you will find in animal products, including meat and eggs and high fat dairy. Now, the issue is that when you take carnitine or choline and you expose it to microbes that know how to make this transformation, they will release TMA, which goes to the liver and is transformed into TMAO. And then this TMAO, again, heart disease, stroke, chronic kidney disease. We don't want it. So how can we protect ourselves? Well, one way is to withdraw the red meat from our diet. There was a study that I thought was quite interesting where they took a vegan, so someone who clearly had not been consuming red meat, and they took an omnivore, not someone eating a fad diet, just an omnivore, like a regular person, the way that I was 10 years ago. And they fed these two people a steak, and then they watched to see what would happen with the TMAO. And the, the omnivore saw a 600% increase in TMAO over 24 hours. The vegan started with zero TMAO, ended with zero TMAO. Because what's fascinating is if you don't have the microbes to produce TMAO, you can't make it. And the vegan diet creates a microbiome that's incapable of producing TMAO. Now, they have further studies where they've taken populations of people and they expose them to choline supplements. And over the course of about four weeks, you create the microbes that produce TMAO. So that same vegan is not a person who has lifelong protection. They are protected as long as they maintain their vegan diet. But if they were to start consuming red meat within about four weeks, they would have a microbiome completely capable of producing TMAO again. So with these diets, keto and carnivore, my fear is that even if you feel great, even if you lose weight, even if you see that there is a short-term metabolic benefit, you are going to pay the price in the long-term because you are creating a gut microbiome designed to produce more TMAO. And that will come back to haunt you at some point in your life. And I love that you mentioned that. And you also mentioned in your book that weight loss doesn't equate health on the inside. And I think that's something that's really important for a lot of people to realize, especially with social media, like we were talking about earlier, you can look at an influencer and say, oh, wow, she looks so good. She lost this amount of weight. I'm going to do what she's doing, but it may not equate to health on the inside. So I think that's really important. And I think that your book really drives that concept home. One of the things that I um, think about a lot and is important to me in my medical practice that I didn't have the ability to talk about in as much detail in the book as I wanted to. But actually, by the way, I, which I'm actually taking a much deeper dive into in the course that I'm going to be launching later this summer is eating disorders. So people who have disordered eating patterns, if you were to see them from the outside on social media, they may look amazing because they've lost weight. And the problem is that the restrictive diet, which frankly is a disease state, they don't necessarily have control over this. It's a compulsion. The restrictive diet is actually causing harm to the gut microbiome. And the, we have studies from the University of North Carolina where I did my GI training. It's one of the top eating disorder clinics in the entire world, where they demonstrated that people who have eating disorders have damage to their gut microbiome. And these, it's completely real. These are 
some of the most challenging cases that I take on in my practice. These are the ones who have been to five or six doctors. Many times they've been to the Mayo Clinic and then they come to see me. And what ends up happening is after four or five office visits, they get very comfortable with me and they will start speaking very honestly. And many times it comes out that there's a history of disordered eating, or in some cases, a history of some sort of abuse or trauma. And you realize that in order to correct this patient, you have to take on that specific issue. And if you don't deal with that, you're never going to heal their gut. They could eat the perfect diet and they could exercise and sleep and do all the things I talk about in my book. But if they have this sort of open wound from an eating disorder or from some sort of trauma or abuse, you're not going to make them better until you really fix that. And so this is where you can look good on the outside and have a damaged gut microbiome on the inside and suffer health consequences in the long run as a result of that. Definitely. And that's why it's so important to keep that in mind when you're making you know, dietary and lifestyle choices. And I think that something that's really important for people to understand is that this fear of carbs and this fear of fruits is not legitimate. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I personally follow a vegan plant-based diet and friends of mine and people that I meet will always say, oh, you're probably malnourished. Oh, you're probably too many carbs. And there's this stigma that, you know, carbs are bad for us and all carbs are the same. And you bring, you know, really good light to that. So I'd love to know a little bit more about your approach to carbs and the types of carbs that we should be incorporating into our diets. I think that when it comes to these macronutrients like carbohydrates, like fat, protein, there's always nuance to the conversation. And when we paint with excessively broad strokes, like taking on an entire macronutrient and saying good or bad things about it, we're kind of missing the detail. And the detail is really needed to have a serious conversation about these things. So, you know, and that includes fat. Like we shouldn't just categorically vilify it. There is good fat that exists. But the point when it comes to carbohydrates is that people who consume even fruit in whole food form, like I, I realize that berries have sugar, okay? But to fixate on the sugar and ignore the whole food, particularly that the berries are such a robust source of fiber, is to miss the critical point. This is, you know, food is not about what happens when people eat something that contains sugar or something that contains this or contains that. Food is food. What happens when you eat berries? That's what I want to know. And what happens when people eat berries is they lose weight and they have less diabetes. And that's true of fruit, period. Now, if you did a fruit-only diet, that would not be a healthy diet because there would be no, from my perspective, you'd be missing out on diversity of plants. There would be no vegetables or whole grains or seeds or nuts or legumes. But fruit is not the enemy. Fruit is not actually causing you to gain weight or causing you to have diabetes. Fruit actually can help to protect you when it's a part of a healthy, balanced diet. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I eat a lot of fruit. And it seems that a lot of people are still confused as to where fruit fits in. Because as a society, you know, we're slowly getting away from added sugar and people sort of, like you said, generalize and put that whole category together. Now, something else that I find really interesting in your book is that you talk about the fact that feeling bloated or gassy after eating something is actually normal. But so often that we'll eat something and we'll feel bloated and gassy. And we automatically think, this food doesn't agree with us. Maybe we have a sensitivity to it and we then eliminate it. But you talk about the fact that that's just a natural GI response to consumption. Sure. Yeah. I think that the key from my perspective is that, and I make this analogy in the book in chapter five, which is that the gut is a muscle. The gut is a muscle in every single way. And what that means is that the gut can be trained. You can make it stronger. 
And when we use this analogy, what happens when you go, Jonathan, to the gym and you have a great workout? How do you feel the next day? Amazing. Strong, healthy. You feel amazing. You feel strong. You feel healthy. And maybe there's a little bit of soreness and that's a good thing, right? When you exercise, there is a slight discomfort that comes with that. That's part of building strength and making yourself strong and amazing, right? So when it comes to exercise, it's all about knowing what your limits are and getting into that sort of window where your limits exist, and but pushing yourself a little bit. And it's the same way with the gut, which is that there is an amount of every single food that your gut is capable of processing and digesting. And when you overshoot and you do too much all at once, that's like going to the gym and being like, okay, normally I lift 25 pounds, but today I'm going to go and grab 75 pounds. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to hurt yourself. You're not built for lifting 75 pounds. You're built for lifting 25. Do 25 today and maybe next week you can do 30. And that's the way it is with our gut. You know, Maybe you have sensitivity to legumes, to beans. And if you continue to consume beans over the course of time, you would become more efficient and more adapted at eating those beans and you'll be able to eat more and more and more. I'm at a point in my life where I can pile on five or six different types of beans onto my salad and I don't even notice at all. I have no gas and bloating. It just feels completely natural. It feels great. There was a time in my life where if I had one bean and I put two scoops instead of one, it would hurt me, right? So you have to adapt your gut. You have to make your gut stronger when you eat these foods. It's like exercise. Definitely. And you talk about gluten also. Because obviously we see a big trend now with people following gluten-free diets who aren't necessarily celiac. And you say that maybe we don't all necessarily need to cut gluten out of our diet. And you spoke about studies that found that it wasn't as inflammatory as we thought. So can we speak to that a little bit? When I was writing my book, I knew that I had to address gluten because at the end of the day, my book is talking about the critical importance of diversity of plants. This is scientifically validated that you know the American Gut Project showed us the single greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is diversity of plants. So I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean for gluten and gluten-free? I need an answer. And I actually stopped writing for three days. And I took that much time to immerse myself into the medical literature and just look at the studies with an open mind and ask the question, what is the deal with gluten? And what I came away with after reading these studies is that we have created this food monster. We have vilified it to the point that people are fearful of their food, scared to eat a piece of bread, and shocked that I eat bread as a medical doctor. And we've gone way too far because there was a study where they looked at the risk of developing heart disease in people who do not have celiac. And what they discovered is that if you are on a gluten-free diet, your risk of having heart disease goes up. Now, coronary artery disease is the number one killer in the United States. The last thing that we should do is make dietary choices that expose us to increased risk of the number one killer. Why would we do that? We're trying to move in the completely opposite direction. We're trying to reduce our risk. So what's the scoop behind the gluten? Then let's dig a little bit deeper. We've been told that it damages the gut, that it causes inflammation, that it induces dysbiosis. Well, that is true if all you looked at were test tube studies. Test tube studies are where they will take some like crazy weird concentration of gluten and stir it up literally in a test tube with some human cells that they've removed from a person's body. And then they see what happens. That's not what actually happens inside my body when I eat a piece of bread. So why don't we look to see what happens when 
a real human being eats a piece of bread. Why don't we look at that? And when they study that, what they discover is that actually the microbiome gets stronger. The microbiome gets stronger because wheat containing foods also contain prebiotics. And the fiber that you get from those prebiotics feeds your microbiome and makes it stronger. It is not damaging your gut. The evidence does not support that. And when we withdraw those prebiotic foods, when we go gluten-free, let me just say, like, it's possible to eat a gluten-free diet and be completely healthy. But the problem is that the average person who's going gluten-free is not a nutritionist. So they don't understand how to replace the loss of whole grains in their diet that they get by giving up all wheat. And if you don't adequately replace it, then you increase your risk of developing heart disease. And that is the inherent issue. So I'm not saying that all gluten is great. I'm not saying that we should maximize gluten in our diet. The majority of gluten-containing foods are processed foods. We should eliminate those. But what I am saying is that sourdough and Ezekiel bread and organic forms of whole grain gluten-containing foods like that contain wheat, barley, and rye are actually good for our gut microbiome. And they should not be tossed because when we toss them, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And it's so great to know this insight because what we see is that overall, you know, the majority of society is restricting themselves too much. And all these foods that we have on our ban list actually do have a benefit and a purpose for our overall health. So it's great to know that we don't have to restrict ourselves as much as we, we've been led to think that we do. Yeah, I think we've made it too complicated. We've made it too complicated. And the problem is, you know, part of the problem is this, writing a book requires no peer review. So it never gets signed off on by another doctor. You can write whatever you want. And if you tell the people what they want to hear, you will sell a lot of books. And that's a problem because you have diets that are popular, that are completely disconnected from the science. And I, prior to writing this book, I mean, I consider myself to be a man of science. Like I, I was publishing papers, medical papers, peer reviewed journals. And when I submit those papers, the way that it works is this, it could be my best friend who's on the other side, who's going to review my paper. Their job is to tear me to pieces. That's part of protecting the integrity of science is to have that peer review. When you write a book, there's no obligation. There is no peer review. And so you can say whatever the heck you want. This is frankly, part of the reason why when I went to get blurbs for my book, you know, we have to go and get like support from people for the book. I cared a lot about getting blurbs from real scientists and you see them in the front of the book. Now, these are real scientists who study the microbiome for a living. And it meant a lot to me to have their support. I realized that my publisher didn't really care about that because that doesn't sell the book. You know, what sells the book is a famous author supporting it, but that was my form of peer review. I wanted to show that these legitimate scientists, people who study the microbiome for a living, look at my book and go, yeah, this is the real thing. So, and that's part of the problem or challenge that we face is that these fad diets, there is no obligation to be science-based. science, science based. You know, I mean, let me give you an example. I hope you guys don't mind. Let me give you an example that kind of irks me. Lectins, lectins, all right? So we have been told that lectins are the bane of human existence, that we are destroying our health with these lectins, which by the way, are proteins not carbohydrates, the proteins that are found in all foods. They're ubiquitous in nature. We have lectins as humans. We all do. But you will find them particularly concentrated in specific foods like legumes and whole grains. And we've been told that that is destroying our health, that it is the bane of our existence. So here's the problem. I take a step back and I look at the science and I go, hold up. Number one, 
We're eating less beans in 2020 than we did in 1960. Less beans. We've cut it back by 30%. So six pounds a year of beans is all the average American eats. I think we should be eating like 30 pounds or 50 pounds of beans. We're eating six. All right. And we're eating 220 pounds of, of meat per year. And you're telling me that the beans are the problem? Seriously? Number two, when we actually study the beans, what do we find? What happens when real people eat real food? That's what I want to know. Like, stop looking at test tube studies for a minute and let's see what happens when real people eat real food. Guess what happens when real people eat real food when they eat beans? They live longer with less heart disease and with less cancer, which are the top two killers. All five blue zones, which are the places in the world where people basically live to be 100 at the highest rate on the planet. All five blue zones are heavy consumers of beans and whole grains, which are lectin-containing foods. So the science is completely disconnected. It's prioritizing low-grade studies like test tube studies, which is weak science, and ignoring ignoring the meta-analyses where basically they compile high-quality human studies to see what happens when real people eat real food. And the irony is this, people who are familiar with the lectin debate, have you heard that the majority of studies on lectins are actually talking about their benefits for protecting us from cancer? Because if a person writes a book about how nasty lectins are, and when you go to the medical literature, you could be a lay person. You don't have to be a medical doctor. Go to PubMed right now, type in the word lectin, and you're going to find that 50% of the studies are about how they protect us from cancer. How could you not mention that? If we're having an honest conversation, how could you not mention that literally at least half the studies are talking about how they protect us from cancer? It seems like a person has an agenda and is not being completely honest when they ignore literally half the studies, <laughs> you know? Definitely. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I have heard a lot of negative things about lectins and I love beans. I mean, my diet includes a lot of beans, but overall beans have gotten a really bad reputation over the years. And there's people who limit them and avoid them and think that, you know, they're a bad food, a banned food. They're foundational foods for the gut microbiome. If yeah. you literally asked me, what are the healthiest foods that exist for the gut? I would say beans and whole grains. And I'm not exaggerating. The reality is this. Many people will hear me say that and go, but hold on doc. I don't feel well. I don't feel well when I eat those foods. That's what chapter five of my book is completely about. And the point is that the reason why you don't feel well when you eat those foods is that you have a damaged gut. And when you have a damaged gut, your gut will struggle to process and digest the fiber that you find in beans and whole grains. They are so enriched with fiber that if you don't have a strong gut, you may struggle to process them. And this is why you have to exercise your gut. You have to start low, go slow and ramp it up over time. Now, I'm glad that you talk about the gut as a muscle, similar to exercise. You have to work on it and strengthen it over time. So I'm curious to get your take on things like digestive enzymes, which make it easier for our body to digest foods. Are taking things like digestive enzymes, which sort of help our digestive system and do what it's supposed to naturally do, helping us? Or is it weakening our digestive system by allowing it to be reliant on sort of this ally that helps it? So I think the thing for me, Jonathan, is that, as you know, I turn to the medical literature to help me, to guide me in terms of forming my take on what's going on with the body. And the problem is that the type of digestive enzymes, there's different types of digestive enzymes. There, there are ones that are prescription only that are used for people that have pancreatic insufficiency. That's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about over-the-counter stuff that any person can buy that are derived from plant enzymes. You know, For example, bromelain is an example of something that helps to break down protein that you'll find in, in pineapple. Okay, so these enzymes exist in nature. And the problem is that we don't have high quality studies with these enzymes because they're all different. 
Every company has their own form. So here's how I approach this scenario. I say, okay, look, risks versus benefits. If I don't have data, how do I weigh the risks versus the benefits for my individual patient? Because I don't have a good study to guide me. Well, the risk to me seems very low. What I would put on the side of risk is financial cost. It may cost you money. The benefit is that for my patient who I am asking to increase the diversity of plants within their diet, they may feel that that helps and makes it easier. And if it opens up their diet and allows them to start to ramp up these foods that they may be struggling with, then that is a win. That is a major benefit. So when I weigh the benefits versus the risks, I see it like this. If you take digestive enzymes and you find them helpful and you think they're good for you, I'm cool. You should do that. And if you don't think that they're beneficial, then think about how much money you're spending on them. And I would argue that if you don't literally feel the benefit, then it's not worth paying that money. Why would you do that? Because you should feel the benefit if they're working. Yeah, I think that's a good approach to take. I mean, I've experimented with them in the past. If I'm going to have, you know, a very heavy meal, I'll take some. But I did notice things like, you know, bromelain in there, which I know comes from pineapple. So I guess finding the most natural source of them is, is the way to go. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any problem with, for example, digestive enzymes or, you know, I talk about in the book probiotics, which are all the hype. Probiotics are the live bacteria. And the problem is this, like if I take one of you guys, you each have your own unique gut microbiome. And when I give you a probiotic, I'm giving you a generic formula in a capsule. And my hope is that this generic formula in the capsule, you will swallow it and it will go down to your completely unique gut microbiome and magic will ensue. It will lead to some sort of health benefit. The problem is we have absolutely no way to know because your microbiome is unique. We have no way to know whether or not this generic formula that I'm giving you is actually going to accomplish that. So it's only through trial and error. So to me, this is where I feel like the system is backwards, where we have been basically sold that probiotics are the foundation of gut health and maybe fiber comes second and then diet and lifestyle comes third. And that's actually the inversion of what it should be. Diet and lifestyle should be first. And I actually put prebiotic fiber supplements second after diet and lifestyle because, you know, for example, Jonathan, if, if I'm taking care of you, you, know, you have a unique gut microbiome. I can't predict exactly what your gut microbiome looks like or how exactly to modulate it just from a test. I can't predict that. Maybe someday we will. But what I do know is this, if I give you a prebiotic fiber supplement, no matter what your gut microbiome is made of, no matter who you are, I'm going to be enriching and strengthening the good guys. I'm going to be giving you more of the guys that produce short-chain fatty acids. So as opposed to if I give you the probiotic, I may be frankly wasting your time with the probiotic. Don't get me wrong. There are patients who I have who benefit from probiotics, but you have to ask yourself, what are you trying to fix? And if you take one, it's a trial. And if it helps you, then you say, is it worth the money? Like, do I feel like the 40 or $50 a month that I pay is worth the way that I feel right now? And if you feel that way, then, then by all means, you know, then do that. Yeah. And I know that in the book, you did talk about some of your prebiotic fibers and you mentioned things like acacia fiber. Um, so you are a fan of like adding those types of things into, let's say, a smoothie or into some recipes to get an extra bit of gut support. I do them every single day myself. Yeah, I do them every single day. I put them in my coffee, actually. Oh, that's smart. So yeah, because it's soluble fiber. And so because it's soluble fiber, it will dissolve in a beverage and disappear. But I will give everyone a warning. Don't make the mistake that I made. <laughs> Even though I am the author of the book Fiber Fueled, I myself have explored, I've tried all the different types of fiber. And um, some of them, even if they're soluble fiber, they have varying forms of viscosity. And so I had uh, beta glucan and glucomannan, 
And the glucomannan, believe it or not, I bought a kilo in powder form. Huge mistake because glucomannan is, by the way, fantastic if you want to lose weight, but it is so thick. And my thing is, so I put it in my my coffee. So I, I took a scoop of glucomannan and then I poured a cup of coffee over it. Next thing I knew, my coffee was gelatin. Something else that I've seen, you know, really popular in the wellness community that I'm just interested to get your take on is food combining. A lot of people have been talking about food combining for optimal digestion and let's say having, you know, fruits on an empty stomach and pairing different foods with specific foods that go with it. What's your take on food combining? Is there really a benefit to it? I haven't seen any study that's validated it to lead me to believe that it's actually a necessary practice. That being said, if you follow the principles that I lay out in my book, if you are eating a diversity of plants and you happen to have a sequence that you believe works for you and you think it makes you feel better, I don't really care. That's fine with me as long as you're following the rules. Well, I'm glad that you were able to debunk that for us because it is something that we started to look into since a lot of people were talking about the benefits. But I agree. I haven't seen any studies on it either. Now, there are a lot of other questions that we would love to ask you, but I know we're up to the one hour mark, so maybe we can save them for perhaps another time. But we'd love to just get a little bit of insight into your mindset. So if there's any advice that you'd give to your 20-year-old self, what would that advice be and why? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, you know, it's kind of funny. The book is actually written to myself in a way. I didn't formally say that at any point, but as I was writing this book, I really prepared it thinking of the way that I was when I was in my 20s because I wanted to have a conversation with that person and help him to understand what are the changes that are necessary to obtain health. And the way that I know is because I actually went through it myself and I made those changes and I lost the 50 pounds and I reversed the anxiety and the blood pressure issue. And that's why you see the book packaged the way that it is, which is that I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be a light read, not something that's hyper intense. I didn't want to put too much pressure on people. So I don't want it like it was never meant to be, hey, like here are the rigid rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you're a horrible person. And I also, you know, although I am thriving on a 100% whole food plant-based diet, thriving, you know, I'm 40 and I feel younger than I did when I was 30. Although that is working for me, I recognize that there is a process to get there for most people. And so I wrote the book really intending to meet people where they are. So rather than the book being, hey, you need to be vegan, the book is more, hey, if you're 10% plants, which is what I was, and you go from 10 to 30, I am your biggest fan. And you're going to feel so much better that you're going to want to go from 30 to 50. And I'm cheering and going crazy over here. And I really truly believe that although we have our own unique biology and there's a lot that we frankly don't yet understand, I truly believe that for longevity, because we're going to be living until we're 80 years old, we need an anti-inflammatory diet, an anti-inflammatory diet to optimize our health so that we are not overly reliant on pills and procedures in our later years. An anti-inflammatory diet is plants. And so I truly believe that the path to optimal health for every single one of us is some variation on a predominantly or potentially completely plant-based diet, no matter who you are. I happen to agree with you on that. And I do also see that your book is great for anyone, regardless of where they are at with their wellness journey. I personally am fully plant-based, but again, it took me time to get there. It wasn't an overnight thing. And I think that you really do offer tips for people to sort of just start with small steps every day that do long-term add up to really big changes that hopefully allow them to feel much better. To me, it's don't put too much pressure on yourself. This is about progress over perfection. This is about making small changes over time. It's okay that once in a while you like go to the freezer and grab that ice cream or whatever it may be. We're human and we celebrate that. 
but it is about getting the compass pointed in the right direction and following that path, which is going to transform your health, transform your life, and you're going to feel so much better. And the best part about this book is that I am getting these messages. I got a message this morning that I just posted to my social media from someone who has been vegan and they've implemented the changes and they're losing weight and they came off their blood pressure pills. That was literally this morning. And I'm getting messages like that every single day. And that to me, this was not about becoming a New York Times bestseller. I'm excited that that happened. It allows me the opportunity to spread my message even further. But this was always about spreading a message that I sincerely believe can help people. And when you see that happening, this is what it's all about for me. Definitely. And again, I commend you on all your success with this book and with your work in general. And I want to thank you for putting out such great information out there. Uh, For people that are listening that want to learn more about your work and perhaps get in touch with you, where are the best places to reach you at? So you can find me on Instagram as the Gut Health MD. I'm also on Facebook as the Gut Health MD. Come to my website. It is theplantfedgut.com. And I have a bunch of resources there. I have a COVID-19 guide. I have a research guide. Like basically, whether you buy my book or not, I have all of my references. I believe in transparency. All of my references are posted to my webpage. You can have them for free. And I include with it a research guide, which explains to you the basics of clinical research for a layperson so that you know where to start and how to weed through all the craziness where you know two doctors are saying totally opposite things. That's amazing. Well, thank you again for putting out such great information and for chatting with us today. We both learned so much from this conversation and from reading your book. Um, And we hope that everyone that's going to listen to this will learn a lot as well. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having me on and I look forward to future conversations as well. Thank you so much for joining us on our conversation today with Dr. B. We spoke a lot about the importance of getting our fiber through a whole foods approach and the great impact that it has on our gut health, as well as on our immune system, our endocrine system, and helping prevent further disease. Definitely check out his book, Fiber Fueled. It'll teach you a lot about how you should properly be taking care of your gut and provide you with a lot of really valuable education and research so you can really make the connection on the benefits of following a high-fiber plant-based diet. In the meantime, you can always send us any questions you have to podcast at drinkdowntoearth.com or you can get in touch on Instagram at drinkdte. As always, stay healthy and stay hydrated. Cheers. Now it's time for you to go out there and do at least one small thing to better your health today. Always choose to make your life a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Until next time. Cheers to good health.